I think the mistake a lot of HR professionals make, and this is the downside, is they push processes and they are overly focused on the employee without really tying it back to the business. I'm Adam Connors from NetworkWise and your host of Who's Who in HR. Ask any successful CEO about the most important aspect of their company and they'll inevitably answer their people. And who is it that's responsible for their people? It's human resources. In fact, HR is the backbone of any elite organization. They attract, develop, and engage top talent, progress culture, secure and manage important benefit programs, make sure you're appropriately paid, protect the best interest of each employee and the company, and so much more that quite frankly often gets taken for granted. On Who's Who in HR, I'll have in-depth discussions with well-known human resource leaders who offer insights into who they are, how they got there, and the areas they support. During our conversation, these leaders will reveal beneficial industry advice and innovative trends in the HR space that's contributing to keeping the world's most successful companies at the top of their game. My guest in this episode is my good friend, Jose Borbor, who oversees a team of compensation and benefits professionals at the Depository, Trust, and Clearing Corporation. Jose is a big believer in connecting with individuals from across all trades so he can get a pulse on what's happening in the world. Let's dive right in. And Jose Borbor, we are live. Thank you for joining me, my friend. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm honored. I got to tell you, I've heard a number of interviews that you've done with some major talent, a uh, music producer, a trainer to the stars, a baseball coach, just to name a few. So hopefully I can do this justice. If not, check out those other interviews. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I've made it, man. I got you here. This is fantastic. No, I, I really appreciate you uh, carving out some time. I know this is a very busy time of year in general, let alone uh, the craziness that's going on out there. So, Boy, yeah. I tell you, man, we've been living through a what will go down is probably a historic moment in the world's history, right? It's, it's just interesting to see how this is going to pan out first and foremost, right? History hasn't been written yet. And uh, it's just going to be uh, an interesting time for, for everyone. And, and the curious, the curious thing of this, right? Obviously, you know, you, you have the human toll that we're all living through and that's devastating. But now there's talks as, as we start to progress and start talking about potentially reopening and returning to work, you know, what does that look like and how does that change in the future? So we'll see. That's interesting. And, and here you are thinking about this. And again, as you and I were talking about the other day, you were ahead of the curve with this. I mean, I remember we were sitting at lunch and this was such a yeah. new topic and you guys were already talking about things. Actually, you know what, before answering that, it'd probably be a good idea to introduce you and get a little background on who you are and who we're talking to right now. So Jose, do you mind just giving a quick synopsis, you know, who you are, what you do, and, uh, and then I'll go into some of the more formal questions and also circle back to this one question in particular. Yeah, yeah. So hey, I'm Jose Borbor. I am part of a human resources leadership team. I work for a financial services company based out of New Jersey. And my focus today is compensation and benefits. So I lead all compensation and benefits initiatives for my company. It's a global company. We're about 5,000 employees. 
worldwide. And my responsibility is really to manage that investment that we're making for our employees from a compensation benefits. And when I think benefits, you, you think healthcare and you also think retirement. Those are kind of the biggest bars, if you will, when it comes to benefits expenses and investments. You know, what was really interesting to me and was one of the actually, you were a big, you don't realize this or not, but that lunch that we had that turned into another conversation is one of the reasons that spawned this podcast. So I don't know if you remember, but you started talking about the benefits and you started getting a little more intricate with me. I knew things very, very high level, like I'm assuming most people did. And then you started talking about, it was pharmacy. I personally didn't think much of it. Oh, you know, you get your drugs or this or that. But then you started getting really deep with me. And then I'd put you in touch with my friend, uh, Seth, who's in this space. And you guys were both kind enough to let me kind of sit in and be a fly on the wall. And I just sat there. I mean, I was blown away at the intricacies that just went into this small little piece of one part of the umbrella that you are holding. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, look, uh, healthcare is a major focus uh, for all companies. It's really a major focus across the country, right? Regardless of companies. But this is the one of the biggest challenges that organizations face because the cost of healthcare has risen astronomically over the last few years and continues to rise and exceed the rate of inflation. On an average year, healthcare goes up about 8 to 10%. That's kind of the medical trend. And a big part of that, is, as you, you were saying, is, is really pharmacy. And it's not pharmacy in general. It's really the specialty drugs that are coming out. These are very expensive blockbuster drugs. And we as a, a company, as we provide insurance to our employees, healthcare insurance, pharmacy goes hand in hand with it. So it's an astronomical cost that I am responsible for, for managing across the organization. And I do remember that conversation. I do appreciate you linking me with Seth because got some, some good advice and guidance from him in terms of how to continue to manage uh, pharmacy in particular, but healthcare overall. Yeah, that is crazy. So, well, if you don't mind, let, let's uh, give the audience a, a better feel for kind of who you are. I'm going to shoot some rapid fire questions at you. You ready? Yeah, yeah let's do it. <laughs> right, nice. Introvert, extrovert, or kind of like a centrovert, ampervert, which is like one of the same. You know, I, I think I'm a natural, well, actually, I know I'm a natural introvert. I'm, I'm comfortable being alone with my thoughts. Uh, but, you know, in a lot of work that I've done and, and over my career, I've learned to be an extrovert. But on the Myers-Briggs assessment, I'm an INTJ, probably hardcore mm-hmm. INTJ. And, and for those that, that haven't uh, done a Myers-Briggs, I think mm-hmm. the best way to simplify an INTJ is we're goal-oriented problem solvers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're also very judgmental, which is not always a good thing. We evaluate the good and the bad of everything. <laughs> I'm an ENTJ if it makes you feel any better. So oh, we're, we're, we're very close. <laughs> yes, uh, we are. Uh, what do you do to stay sharp physically? Man, I, I'm big on physical fitness. I've been working out religiously for about 20 years. And I actually remember it very, I remember the day I decided to get into fitness. It was the day my second son was born mm, uh, about 20 it. years ago. When he was born, I was weighing over 200 pounds. And for a guy in my frame, 200 pounds is a lot. That was trouble. <laughs> um, so I took it upon myself to say, I really want to be in, in good condition, good shape, good form as I quite honestly grow up with them, right? Because yeah. I was fairly young when I had my kids. Today, I'm happy to say I, I'm probably around 155. I feel great. 
and I get to wear my kids' hand-me-downs. So that's, that's, <laughs> how, that's how good it is in my house. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And then what about the, you know, equally as important, maybe if not more important, what are you doing to stay, to keep your mind sharp? That's a great question. And, and, you know, there's a lot of things that you can do out there. And, and you know, in the, in the company I work for, we're big on mindfulness training. We, we provide that to employees and, and really focus on mental well-being, if you will. But to me, I, honestly, I, Adam, I link the physical and the mental mm. fitness to me go hand in hand, right? So my mood and attitude are shaped by my physical activities. You really don't want to be around me when I'm not having had a chance to work out, right? <laughs> so I've tried meditation but I lose focus very easily. So I really rely on the physical and I do everything from running to lifting, high intensity training. I, I try a little bit of everything. I've learned that the goal to stay in good physical shape is muscle confusion, right? Mm. Keep repeating the same thing. At some point, your body catches up with you and it doesn't show you the results. So to me, the physical activity is really helps with the, with the mindfulness as well. Interesting. So I, I completely agree. And to kind of piggyback that, you almost alluded to my next question because you were saying like, you know, doing the same thing over and over again is not really getting you anywhere. But if you don't mind, tell me about a habit, something that you do do <laughs> over and over, whether that you have that's good or bad. I can give you a long list of bad <laughs> habits that I have. And I'm sure if you ask my wife, she'll add to it. I think over the last few months, I've been focusing on one thing and, and it came from a conversation that I participated in a training, if you will, from a world-renowned executive coach in my company. We invited him to come give a talk. And one of the things that he said is, you know, one of the common leadership challenges that leaders face is that they try to, they're winning too much. They're always trying to win, right? And at first thought, you think about that, and you're like, what's wrong with that? Yeah. You know, what's wrong with wanting to win? Isn't that kind of why we, we compete? Isn't that why, you know, the challenge that, that we, we set before us is to overcome it and win? But I think it, it becomes trouble when it manifests itself into trivial activities. Um, I'll give you an example. I think most people could share in this example is when I get behind a, the wheel of a car, I get on the road, I literally turn into a NASCAR driver. Driving to me becomes a race. And I don't have a need for speed, so it's not about going the fastest and exceeding the speed limit. But I can easily get riled up if a car passes me. And then gets in front of me. And, and to me, that becomes the, the need to win too much. And so I'm really trying to break this habit and trying to really let go of things uh, that are trivial and insignificant and focus wow. on the things that really matter. That's a good share. And uh, it's so interesting that now we can kind of bring it back to one of the questions that I'd asked you before going into this rapid fire this present situation that we're in these days, one of the really positive that's come of it that I've been hearing over and over is that it has forced people to kind of take a step back, reevaluate, yeah, what is important? Is it getting there first, getting cut off, or what is it? What is important? So, yeah, that's a great share. I really appreciate that level of vulnerability. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no yeah look, I think in this pandemic, to, to add to, to what you're, you're saying, you know, I think one of the great things, and you mentioned it before, that my company did is we got out in front of this very early. I think it was the first week in March where we were already talking mm -hmm. about what steps and actions we could take. If you look at the history of when most companies, most cities went on, the, on lockdown across the U.S., it was probably closer to the end of March. And we were probably a week ahead in terms of how we we're going to address it. 
And really, this goes back to kind of the belief and principle of the company in terms of putting employees first, employees before profits. And we've really did yeoman's work to make sure that employees were taken care of. So we shut down early. We did it across the board. Some companies were thinking maybe we'll stagger it. We'll do the high impact states. Maybe we'll bring some people in one week, some another week. They were trying to think of creating A, B, skeleton crews, if you will. But we went full boat, shut down early March, around the second week in March, and we uh, haven't looked back. And even today, we were talking about returning to work, and there seems to be a lot of pent-up demand across organizations and states and governments around reopening. And you know, our CEO, this comes from the, the top of the house, our leadership really says, you know, we're not in a rush to open up. We're going to do it when we know it's safe for employees to return, and we're, we're not looking to put any employees at risk. And we're managing okay. I'm not saying we're at 100% productivity, but we're getting the job done. We're getting our work done. And most people are doing it remotely. 95% of our workforce is working remote today. So how do you come, well, actually, one of the things that I've always been impressed with you throughout the years has been the vast network that you've amassed and that you've maintained. And again, I remember getting back to just that, let's just keep going back to that lunch where again, you guys were a week ahead. And I was thinking to myself, oh my God, this is a little over the top. This is again, before this is early. I remember just reflecting, that was my thought. And Mm -hmm. you were talking about, well, you know, I I called, I'm not going to say names, but I called this person at JP Morgan and I called this person at UBS or whatever organizations that you had these relationships with. That I was very impressed with. You, You care to share how you've gone about how you make these decisions and so, you know, maybe without saying the names, but just what was it about their perspective that you trusted? Yeah, look, look, I am a big believer and you asked me before, uh, I'm an introvert and just because I'm an introvert doesn't mean I don't network, right? I don't get out there. I've managed to build some very strong relationships throughout my career. If you, you look back to when I started to today, I've worked at probably seven or eight different major global financial services companies throughout my career. And one of the things that I prided myself on was making sure I built long-lasting, long-term relationships uh, at each one of those companies because this is the industry that I'm in. I'm in financial services. I think the best leaders are those that can rely on a network of folks outside of your immediate circle to see what's going on, to get a pulse of what's happening and give you some guidance in terms of how to deal with some challenges, whether they're dealing with the challenge today or they dealt with the challenge before. So for me, as we're going through this planning and preparation for this pandemic, I was getting a pulse of what other companies were doing, what the big financial services companies were doing, what their plans were. The decisions we made were not necessarily based on the decisions they were making, but it was more as a test to say, are we heading in the right direction? Are we doing the right things? And in some instances, we were ahead of the curve particularly around when we were going to close. Yeah. And by being ahead of the curve, what has that done for the organization? I think it's done a couple of things. I think from a a health perspective, it's it's hard to take full credit to say we kept every employee healthy by closing a week earlier. Although we could safely say that we didn't have people commuting to and from work, uh, potentially catching the virus either in public transportation or at the office, right? So from that respect, I think it's helped. 
But quite honestly, I think the biggest impact for us is the credibility and engagement mm. that we've gained from our workforce. And we actually just did a pulse survey. So we do a, a biannual, twice a year survey to our employee base to kind of ask them questions on engagement, on leadership, direction of the organization, how we're doing with our strategy. And we had a significant uptick in our favorability rates across the board, off the charts in terms of engagement. We even asked pointed questions around how we were handling this pandemic, how the organization was dealing with this pandemic. And we really got high marks. So I think by making some of these decisions early on, by really truly going out with the message that we're going to put employees first, I think that's paid dividends in terms of commitment, loyalty, and engagement from our employee base. And I think that translates to productivity. I think that translates to a more engaged workforce, uh, really going above and beyond to do what's right for the company. Yeah, no, I agree. You said it, loyalty. Loyalty is, uh, it's going to go real far. <laughs> what about, you know, let's go back to your expertise, benefits, compensation, and I guess just overall, I guess, HR. What is it that you like most about what you do? And is there an area that you could do without? When you think about compensation and benefits, the one way I think about it is I'm responsible for, not myself and my team, we're responsible for as you said before, the largest asset of the organization, which is the employees. When you put the compensation and benefit lens on it beyond HR, we're responsible for a major investment or an organizational expense, depending on how you look at it. The average company is spending north of 50% of their expenses on their human capital, on their people. And that is primarily driven by salaries, or compensation, including bonuses, incentives, sales incentives, et cetera. Benefits, which we just talked about, healthcare and how it's really gotten off the charts in terms of costs, and then retirement contributions. So when I speak to business leaders and other folks, I can say I manage about $750 million of our expense, the organization's expense, and that's all human capital. That's the big driver. I think that's what motivates me. That's what really jazzes me up about this line of work. And every day, I'm focused on how to maximize that investment. How do I ensure that that dollar is going to the best areas, to the best initiatives, and truly driving what we're getting at, which is employee retention, productivity, engagement. That is kind of how you link it back to the organization. Wow. What experience do you attribute the success that you've had and continue to have? A number of things, right? But I think if I go back to my early days, one of the things that I did coming fresh out of school, and by the way, I studied this, I studied HR, right? I think if you look at uh, human resources professionals, a lot of the folks in human resources end up in HR almost by accident. They start down a, a path of maybe a more technical path, whether it's finance or operations, and they just have a knack and, and a passion for HR. They develop it over time and they go into human resources. It's one of the few, I, I would say, professions that don't require a whole lot of licensures, certifications, uh, although they're, they're out there. I know mm-hmm. uh, SHRM is a big company that certifies human resources professionals. But for me, having studied human resources, growing up doing human resources, if you will, straight out of school, 
But one of the early experiences that has really shaped and managed how I, I do HR and how I manage compensation and benefits was my consultant experience. Mm-hmm. I was a consultant for a number of years early on. And, and as a consultant in that field, you are truly, you're a business person because you're selling your services, you're selling your initiatives. I was selling human capital initiatives. So I had to figure out how to truly find the value and link that value to the organization's priorities, to the organization's challenges. So for me, that has shaped the skill set of being able to think business first, be a business person first. And I remember throughout my career as I was working for some of these big financial services companies, that was a mantra that some of uh, one of my previous companies had is business first, HR second. And it's not to dismiss the work that we do from an HR perspective, but the only reason we're there is to really help support the business, ensure that the business can operationalize their strategy, meet their priorities, achieve their goals. So from that perspective, that has really shaped me and helped me do what I do best, which is kind of manage that human capital investment. Is it your ability to understand the bigger picture of the business so you can relate to your underlying client set? Yes, that is a big part of it. It's it's truly, really understanding what's the underlying business issues, business problems. I mentioned the INTJ, we're we're problem solvers, goal-oriented problem solvers. So to me, it's really understanding the underlying business issues and identifying the appropriate human capital strategies, the human capital initiatives, the HR processes that best link to that. I think the mistake a lot of HR professionals make and this is the downside, is they push processes and they are overly focused on the employee without really tying it back to the business. And HR gets a bad rap because of that. We're kind of viewed as not uh, a disengaged from the business, not having a true line of sight to the business. And that's something that we are overcoming uh, slowly but surely, but it's still out there. I, I still have business leaders that look at HR as kind of more of an administrative function, just uh, you know, more focused on the hiring and firing, if you will. And that's just one part of the three-legged stool. Hmm. Yeah, no, ain't that the truth. So what about like, I'm seeing a trend of HR getting a bigger seat at the table these days. Is that something that you're seeing or maybe if not a bigger, uh, like a deeper appreciation for? Very much so. I, I think companies recognize the value of HR. But I think a lot of that comes back to the HR professionals that are in those seats, right? And what value they, they're bringing to the table. So I think I can safely say that at the company I work for, HR has a, a clear seat at the table. I get to participate in some of those discussions from my vantage point as a, a compensation benefits professional or compensation benefits leader. And I've seen it at other companies I've worked at, but then there are companies and there are pockets that HR is still viewed as very administrative. But your perspective is like, yeah, there could be a culture of not appreciating it, but at the same time, it's the individual's responsibility to kind of raise their hand, bring, you know, if there isn't a seat at the table, create the seat. That's exactly right. It's a two-way street. I think that bad rap that's out there has some merit. And that merit is based on how folks approach the work. And I see it firsthand when some of our more junior HR professionals kind of look at their remit of work. And their focus is on pushing processes, checking the box that you completed your engagement survey, that you have your goals in the system mm. versus really, again, coming back to, you know, what, what, are we, what is the organization trying to solve for? What is that line of business that I support working on? And how do I tie this work? Because I got to get this done. Don't get me wrong. You got to complete those processes. Mm-hmm. 
right? But how do I tie it back to the organization so that it becomes a burning platform for them to do it? Any particular invite advice for someone that's kind of coming up in the field or maybe they're at a midway part, uh, a midway, uh, I don't know, let's call it seven to 10 years in their career and they need to make a decision. Hey, do I stick with this or do I try something new? The advice is for looking for the person that does want to kind of take their career to a next, to the next level. What would you recommend? I think if you are an HR professional who has a done, let's say, uh, been an HR business partner or generalist for, for many, many years, and you're really looking to become an HR leader in the future, run HR, if you will, at your organization or somewhere else, I think to me, the biggest advice is to ensure that you get experienced in all HR disciplines. And compensation and benefits, not because I'm in it, it's not why I say this, but I think that is a fundamental area that you really need to have some experience in to be able to be in the bigger circle, to be able to grow in other HR areas. But there's also talent acquisition. Recruiting is a big part of the organization. So my biggest advice would be get the broad base experience early on because that will really prepare you to take on broader leadership roles across HR in the future. Mm, That's good advice. What was some of the best advice someone gave you? Probably the the best advice that I've received is to, to just let it go. Let it go. And, and what that means to me is, again, focusing on the little things, worrying about the trivial things could consume too much of your time that it takes away from the bigger picture. It takes away from the bigger goal. That to me is something I work on on a regular basis because it's very easy to get caught up in the day-to-day and the minutia of things. And to me, the biggest advice is letting things go because that really frees your mind up to think more broadly and, and more big picture, if you will. Mm. Is that along the lines of kind of like a busy versus important or you're just very much so. Okay. Very much so. Yeah. It's exactly right. But it's also just from a, a personality perspective, right? I think sometimes we're in a relationship business. And so I'm dealing with leaders within HR across the organization and you may not see the eye to eye, right? And sometimes you can get overly consumed with trying to win that person over or vice versa, trying to see their side of things. In the grand scheme of things, that may not matter, quite frankly, right? I think you really have to focus on what's your biggest objective, what's your biggest goal, and agree sometimes to disagree. So that's where the letting go is, not hanging on to someone's perception or someone's disagreement, if you will, with your perspective and your point of view. That's really good advice. And you know, that's the first, uh, I've asked this question a bunch of times. That's the first time that I've received that answer. So I love the uniqueness there. (laughs) Thank you. Great. Yeah, you're welcome. (laughs) Let let me ask you this. How much, I mean, you've got a great pedigree and you've really not showcased that here. And I'm sure you're just, that's the humble nature of who you are. But if you don't mind, I'd love the program that you are part of, that master's program at Columbia. I'd love to know what kind of impact that had on you and I mean, I just know the people just from your group of graduates, your yeah. tight, tight crowd. I mean, each and every one of them is, is done extremely well. And I don't know if that's just, is it coincidence? You know, the whole causation, co- or oh, I forgot what that, yeah. uh, expand on that. Tell me about that program and what kind of impact that had from your perspective on your career. So you're alluding to my, my master's degree and it's from Teachers College, Columbia University. And yes, yeah, so I, I got a degree in organizational psychology. And actually, I think if, if I go back to that program, right, that's kind of how we met as an aside. 
I think you were very close with a buddy of ours, uh, Samir Khatib. Mm-hmm. And he, he actually introduced us. And I remember it's probably 20 years ago now as we were coming out of the program. We were just starting our career working in the industry and financial services. I remember meeting you over dinner one, one night uh, 20 years ago. But to your point, look, I owe a lot of my success to that program. I think that program, from a development perspective, provided me with the right skill set, the right tools to really do what I do today. And I still use a lot of the learning because it was a very practical program. It wasn't heavy theory. It was very more, it was geared more towards the action, the, the working professional and how do you operationalize the work that you do from an HR perspective. And to your point, I think about my cohort, my key contacts, my key networks, which by the way, I still stay very much in touch with the Sams, the Mikes of the world. We all graduated together and we, we've all made our own path from this program. I think we would all agree that it has a lot to do with that and just taking that and applying it practically to our business setting. That's really where the success comes from. That is great. Jose, this has been fantastic. Uh, So many takeaways from this conversation, whether it's from your career trajectory, the people that have impacted your life, how you guys have handled situations, some of the challenges that you're facing, trends. We covered a lot. I want to thank you for carving out the time, like I said, especially during these times, and uh, just for also being a guest on the show. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Really enjoyed talking with you. Awesome. Everyone, make it a great day. Many thanks for listening to Who's Who in HR. If you're looking to connect with more top-level HR professionals, be sure to log on to NetworkWise.com to find out how you could be part of an HR mastermind group. Also, Subscribe to our newsletter to stay up to date on everything happening with NetworkWise. In the interim, make it a great day and remember to always NetworkWise.